Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the 19th episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I'm your host. If you feel that listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. This episode is dedicated to our bodies, your body, mine, every single home we each inhabit, big and small, young and old, thin and fat, curved or straight, sick or safe. Our bodies ensure our survival, and they seldom get enough thanks. Take a moment to say a silent or vocal thank you to your body for being your home. Our bodies hold on to trauma in an effort to keep us safe. They remember the trauma of the past so they might prevent the trauma of the future. We learn to approach life in a certain way because of our past experiences. We learn what is safe and what might not be. These lessons are held by our bodies. We have unintentionally taught them what is threatening and what is harmless. It is especially hard for them to find safety and peace once they have been exposed to danger. I know this firsthand. Because my eating disorder largely proliferated during puberty and when I was growing, my body never knew what it meant to be safe. And that has proved detrimental as my body inadvertently keeps reliving the trauma of the past. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, a psychiatrist famous for his research and experience in the treatment of trauma, writes, quote, For real change to take place, the body needs to learn that the danger has passed and to live in the reality of the present. End quote. The commonality of gastrointestinal complications in those who have recovered from or suffer with eating disorders is astounding. Most studies demonstrate upwards of 95%, even some saying 98%, of those with a documented eating disorder fit the criteria for a functional gut disorder and upwards of 50% for irritable bowel syndrome, otherwise known as IBS, which is the most prevalent functional gut disorder of those with eating disorders. Quote, The emotional brain keeps working, and stress hormones keep sending signals to the muscles to tense for action or mobilize in collapse. The physical effects on the organs go on unabated until they demand notice when they are expressed as illness. End quote. This seems to suggest that the physical trauma of an eating disorder or disordered eating may predispose an individual to a functional gut disorder. A functional gut disorder, FGDs, is a gastrointestinal disorder that doesn't have evidence of an anatomical gastrointestinal disease. Examples include IBS, gastric reflux, bloating, constipation, and diarrhea. Those with digestive tracts implicated by functional gut disorders 
generally have delayed movement of food through their systems. Their intestinal nerve cells are hypersensitive and their brain's response to symptoms associated with FGDs differ from what a medical practitioner would consider a normative response. Quote, The stress hormones of traumatized people take much longer to return to baseline and spike quickly and disproportionately in response to mildly stressful stimuli. The insidious effects of constantly elevated stress hormones contribute to many long-term health issues, depending on which body system is most vulnerable in a particular individual, end quote. The digestive systems of those with eating disorders have been through a lot, and the trauma undergone may lead to the digestive system being the most vulnerable to developing a concomitant disorder or illness. Functional gut disorders are also veiled in the chicken and egg debate. Eating disorders and functional gut disorders appear to be cyclical. EDs may cause FGDs, and simultaneously FGDs can make a person vulnerable to the development of an eating disorder. This is a continued debate when exploring the intersection of eating disorders and the manifestation of gastrointestinal disorders. Most of the evidence available and that is featured in this episode comes from psychologists or nutritionists who are those involved in the treatment of eating disorders and GI disorders, yet research is lacking from gastroenterologists who are those who might dis- diagnose a potential functional gut disorder or gastrointestinal disorder. The entanglement between gastrointestinal and eating disorders deserves more attention by all types of medical practitioners. Gastrointestinal complications that may result in a functional gut disorder diagnosis and or appear subsequent to an eating disorder include heartburn, gas, bloating, early fullness, nausea, abdominal distension, rectal pain, constipation, diarrhea, postprandial fullness, abdominal pain, gastric distension, early satiety, and altered esophageal motility. These symptoms may appear simultaneously or in any other subgrouping. When discussing such, such symptomology in the life or recovery of one with an eating disorder, the experiences tend to differ depending on the specific type of eating disorder. One with the restrictive subtype of anorexia, where severe limitations are placed on food intake and may be combined with extreme exercise to pursue a desired body shape, might face muscular atrophy of their entire digestive tract because of prolonged restriction. Additionally, they may experience what is known as gastroparesis, which is slow stomach emptying, and results in postmeal pain, pressure, and discomfort. Because slow stomach emptying can also lead to early fullness, treatment plans for restrictive anorexia early on may not honor the hunger cues of the individual, as those hunger cues are still in restricted mode. For hunger cues to normalize, the individual may need to eat past satiety or fullness, especially if they need to be physically restored and gain weight. Further, those with anorexia might develop superior mesenteric artery syndrome, SMA, where the artery in the first portion of the intestines, called the duodenum, is compressed. This is rare, 
but extremely dangerous for malnourished individuals and may result in a medical emergency. Those with anorexia may also have difficulty swallowing because of loss of muscle tone in the esophagus that might lead to esophageal motility disorders and abnormalities in recovery. For someone within the binge purge subtype of anorexia, where eating is followed by a purging activity such as forced vomiting, misuse of laxatives, or extreme exercise, similar esophageal motility abnormalities may interfere with recovery. Overall, between 67 and 83% of anorexia nervosa patients are eventually diagnosed with constipation, which may proceed in IBS diagnosis. The gastrointestinal symptomology in the binge purge subtype of anorexia tends to parallel that of a bulimia survivor. Those who have struggled with or recovered from bulimia might face acute cialia denosis, in which the parotid glands in the cheeks become swollen and painful, which can lead to the image of a fuller face. Those in recovery or suffering from bulimia may also experience gas, bloating, indigestion, and gastritis, which is the inflammation of the lining of the stomach causing upper abdominal pain. Binging and purging by vomiting may also lead to tooth decay, salivary gland enlargement, and GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Gastric reflux, which is increased acidity in the esophagus and results in a burning sensation due to repeated bouts of self-induced vomiting, is also common, and this can cause really dangerous erosion of the esophagus and lessened muscle tone in the throat. The esophagus can even tear, which requires immediate medical attention. Daily vomiting can put tremendous stress on another organ, the heart. This may result in arrhythmias, palpitations, and potentially death. If the purging activity is not self-induced vomiting and is instead laxative use, the individual may come to be completely dependent on laxatives and be severely dehydrated. Their kidneys may cease to function properly and their colon nerves may be overstimulated, leading to a cathartic colon, which requires invasive surgery. Rectal prolapse, where part of the large intestine slips outside of the anus, is rare but may result for those suffering from extreme constipation and or laxative abuse. Overall, 62.8% of bulimia nervosa patients are eventually diagnosed with constipation, and 68.8% of bulimia nervosa patients are eventually diagnosed with IBS, which includes constipation in its symptomology. For someone with binge eating disorder, they may face acute gastric dilation, which is the delayed gastric emptying because their stomach becomes overdistended with food. The stomach may eventually lose its ability to empty its content, resulting in an obstruction of blood flow to the intestine. The more the stomach is distended, the greater the chance for a stomach rupture, which is understandably extremely dangerous. This gastric dilatation and gastric perforation go hand in hand. 
Those with binge eating disorder may face some or all of the symptomology presented above for those with restrictive anorexia, binge purge anorexia, and bulimia. Finally, those who suffer from PICA, which is defined as the consumption of items or substances without significant nutritional value, may face extreme intestinal blockage and stomach toxicity may face extreme intestinal blockage and stomach toxicity. The indigestible objects consumed can cause blockage, cuts, or tears within the digestive tract or induce toxic substances, parasites, bacteria in the body. Diagnosis for PICA is generally accompanied by tests for anemia, intestinal blockage, and toxicity measurement. Symptomology will vary with the individual and the eating disorder they are dealing with or have dealt with. Eating disorder categories and their corresponding gastrointestinal complications are not rigidly defined. There is normally overlap. IBS affects 7-21% to of the global population and 12% of the people in the United States. It is two times more common in women than in men and is more likely to occur in people under the age of 50. There is, as of right now, no clear pathophysiology for IBS. So its diagnosis is made based on symptoms after ruling out other conditions. Quote, Somatic symptoms for which no clear physical basis can be found are ubiquitous in traumatized children and adults. They can include chronic back and neck pain, fibromyalgia, migraines, digestive problems, spastic colon or irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, and some forms of asthma, end quote. IBS sufferers have an altered brain-gut connection, increased intestinal permeability, and dysbiosis, which is imbalanced and unfunctional bacteria in the microbiome. The bacteria of one with IBS aren't functional in digestion, hormone balance, and metabolism. Additionally, people with IBS have higher levels of anxiety and depression, and IBS is typically associated with psychosocial impairment. IBS sufferers may be more inclined to develop disordered eating as a way to cope with or mitigate against discomfort or pain in their digestive system. The chicken and egg debate emerges once again. Right before the end of 2020, and just after I had claimed myself as recovered, another curveball was thrown my way. I was diagnosed with IBS. Quote, The physical effects on the organs go on unabated until they demand attention in the form of illness or disease. The body continues to keep the score. End quote. My body kept score. After six years of disordered eating and unintentional danger, my body rebelled. It no longer knew safety and thus became dysfunctional. This diagnosis has prompted a new awareness of self, mental, emotional, and physical. It requires an interoceptive awareness, which at times can be exhausting. But my IBS, lovingly called Ibi, demands care.
I've just recently begun treatment and it has been grueling, but I'm hopeful for the future. I'm not expecting to share every detail of this new journey here quite yet, but my discoveries will come later as this new stage of healing commences. Much of the discussion today and many of the suffering of those with IBS stems from disruptions in the gut microbiome. Deviation in the gut microbiota has been revealed in gastrointestinal disorders, leading researchers to investigate the role of microbiota in the pathogenesis of several diseases. The gut microbiota maintains a complex bidirectional communication system with the central nervous system, CNS, and the gut-brain axis. It involves neurons, endocrine, and immune systems, contributing to the regulation of emotional behavior and cognition. The microbiota describes the different micro-populations present in your large intestine, including bacteria, archaea, and viruses. It has evolved alongside humans to get to where we are today, living in a mutually beneficial relationship. The diversity of the microbiota will vary from person to person. Recent studies have found that anorexia nervosa patients deviate from controls in the abundance, diversity, and microbiome composition of the fecal microbiota, which remains significantly different from those of healthy controls, even after refeeding. Unfortunately, studies on the microbiome composition of patients with binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa are currently lacking. Studies testing pre-morbid microbiota of eating disorder patients would be particularly valuable, so we might compare the damage an eating disorder does on one's gut microbiota. Deviant microbiota may be caused by dieting, which limits microbial diversity. Or eating disorder patients may have had deviant microbiota premorbidly. The chicken and egg debate again. Gut microbiota is disturbed by stress and anxiety, which can worsen and aggravate existing GI issues. More research is needed on the brain-gut connection, as early studies have shown that there is a strong communication pathway between the two. Understandably, anxiety and depressive disorders are underlying mental health challenges in those who suffer from functional gut disorders and eating disorders. Trauma alters the way our autonomic nervous system, the ANS, operates. The ANS includes dual systems called the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system, SNS, triggers the fight-or-flight response, prompting defensive actions by fueling the body with the right balance of necessary chemical reactions. The second system, the parasympathetic nervous system, PNS, works to reverse and balance the first. When functioning properly, it allows us to return to a calm state after the threat has passed and to return to a state of homeostasis. Digestion is heavily dependent on the parasympathetic nervous system, the PNS, which is, quote, responsible for the body's rest and digestion response when the body is relaxed, resting, and feeding. It basically undoes the work of sympathetic division after a stressful situation, end quote. The PNS is what prompts salivation, stomach acid production, pancreas secretion of enzymes, gallbladder ejection of bile, and regular motor function to move food through the small intestine and colon, associated with the balance of bacteria in the intestine. P 
PNS and decreasing respiration and heart rate helps to regulate digestion and balance our various bodily systems. Quote, The parasympathetic nervous system promotes self-preservative functions like digestion and wound healing. It triggers the release of acetylcholine to put a break on arousal, slowing the heart down, relaxing muscles, and returning breathing to normal, end quote. Treatment for concomitant functional gut disorders and eating disorders can be incredibly complicated. It generally requires a nuanced approach, one that recognizes the potential triggers associated with food. Medical providers and dietitians have encouraged an elimination diet for functional gut disorders, specifically for IBS, which contradicts the goal of nutrition therapy for eating disorders. Quote, Until better methods to risk stratify patients are available, clinicians should strive to understand their patients' dietary habits to ensure that significant restriction has not already been implemented, end quote. General IBS therapy includes a low FODMAP diet, which can understandably be triggering for those at risk of an eating disorder or disordered eating relapse. This low FODMAP, which stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols diet, guards against short-chain carbohydrates that can ferment in the intestines if poorly digested. Eliminating anxiety over food choice and increased stress before and after meals, while avoiding tropes of diet culture and food preoccupation, is the eventual goal. Digestive difficulties, if detected prior to eating disorder symptomology, can introduce another barrier in healing because medical providers may just diagnose the digestive disorder and not the eating disorder that may have caused the emergence of GI symptoms in the first place. Treatment often is a multidisciplinary approach, including members from gastroenterology, psychiatry, psychology, and nutrition. Quote, If your sleep is disturbed or your bowels don't work or if you always feel hungry or if being touched makes you want to scream, the entire organism is thrown into disequilibrium. It is amazing how many psychological problems involve difficulties with sleep, appetite, touch, arousal, and digestion. Any effective treatment for trauma has to address those basic housekeeping functions of the body. End quote. It is agreed that of these two disorders, the eating disorder should be treated first. Another approach to functional gut disorder and eating disorder treatment is, you know, with our knowledge on the parasympathetic nervous system, to acknowledge the dimensional reality of our bodies and become mindful of stress. Quote, By allowing the body to have experiences that deeply and viscerally contradict the helplessness rage, or collapse that result from trauma, healing is imminent, end quote. When we can form a communication system with all of the processes happening internally, mental and physical, we can communicate that we are finally safe. It is clear that eating and GI disorders occur concomitantly. Quote, the challenge of recovery is to reestablish ownership of your body and your mind, end quote. 
know that every new encounter does not have to be contaminated by the past, even if that past includes an eating disorder or disordered eating. Your body doesn't have to always be defending itself against invisible assaults. You are mutable, evolving, growing, healing. You don't have to be threatened anymore. If you would like to learn more about what sources I used in the discussion of the intersection of eating disorders and gastrointestinal disorders, my citations will be placed in the show notes. Next week, HTIL will discuss one of the languages of healing, storytelling. This has been something I've been interested in since day one, and I can't wait to explore it in greater depth. We will also continue to discuss the novel The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk in conversation with this notion of storytelling as healing. Tune in on Friday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project HEAL, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States delivering prevention, treatment financing, and recovery support for those struggling with eating disorders. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter account, so if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on Instagram at Heavier Than I Look and Twitter at HTIL Podcast. If you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way... HTL is a space of healing, of recovery, and of storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now. <laughs>